Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. I'm Gabe Legaspi. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the preaching team. And man, I'm super excited to jump into Mark and continue our series. I'm really excited about this series, The Story of the King. In fact, if you're wondering, we're going to be in Mark all the way up to the Easter story. We're going to land on Easter in the Easter story. So if you want to dig into your Bibles throughout the week, you want to check out where we're going, we're going to be in Mark for a while just unpacking this story of the king. Not a king, but the king, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at this. You know, all throughout human history, we have told ourselves a certain type of story over and over again. There's this archetype of story where there's this, this, this kingdom longing for a rightful king to be put in place. You know what I'm talking about? This, this story where they look around, they say things are broken, busted, we can't wait till, till the real king shows up. We see it in the story of Robin Hood, right? The land's in disarray, and there's, there's evil influences that aren't the rightful rulers, and they're looking for the rightful king to return. We see it in the story of King Arthur. We see it in the story of the Lord of the Rings, waiting and anticipating for somebody to come and unify things and make things right again. We see it even in the Lion King. I mean, come on, the Lion King. Over and over again, we've been telling this story, waiting for the rightful king to take the throne. And now we're looking at the story of the king. This time, it's a reality that speaks to what we've always been longing for. See, kings and kingdoms have to do with authority. Jesus is a king like no other king. He claims a greater dominion than any other king before or since. And all throughout the story of the king that we're going to be looking at, we will see how Jesus is king, and we will be forced to wrestle with the question, does he have the authority? Is he the rightful king? More importantly, we will each be forced to wrestle with the question, is he my king? Is he your king? Last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism. This is like a coronation uh, ceremony where Jesus is baptized, and we see the authority placed on him. We see the Trinity all together. We see Jesus in the water. We hear God the Father speak out, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And we see the, the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove. And we looked at even how that's, that was a very tell. It was almost hearkening back to the, the beginning of creation when they were all three there, and the Spirit of God was hovering like a dove there as well. It's almost this pronouncement that there's a new creation happening, a new kingdom being reinstituted. But then Jesus moves from this incredible, high, awesome moment, and we read that he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. You'd think, like Andrew pointed out, you'd think it'd be like this military campaign, and they would, they'd fix everything. They would storm the castle but instead, Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be prepared for what's ahead of him. And he's tested. And this isn't just like some little prerequisite course that he gets this news through because he's God. It's actually hard, and it's actually scary, and he's hungry. 
There's wild beasts, and he's tempted, showing his humanity. He's a suffering servant, but he's also the rightful king. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can flip quickly to, to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and, and Jesus goes through this trial in this wilderness, and then he begins his ministry. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He's back, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. That word gospel literally means good news. It's not just a genre of music. It's good news. The gospel of God is the good news. And let me tell you just a quick little truth here. If you ever hear about Jesus and it's not good news, it's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is always good news. And he's saying to them, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. So repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, change your mind, change your orientation, change your direction, and believe in this good news that the king is here. This is the story of our king, and this is what he proclaims. And he he goes about his teaching, and he's passing through, and he calls his disciples. He sees these young fishermen in the boat with their dad. They're probably young. They're in the boat with their dad. They're learning how to do the family trade. And he says, hey, I'll make you fishers of men. And they start following him. And then he moves from there, and he's preaching. And everywhere he preaches, there's this like, wow, he preaches with such authority. Remember, kings have to do with authority. And so they get, he's preaching with such authority. In fact, there's these demon-possessed people that, that come up, and, and, and Jesus quickly quiets them, and they go, look, there's even more authority. He's, he's driving out demons. Look at all the healing he's doing. Look at all the authority that he has. And he starts to gain this notoriety in this crowd so much that he can't move around in the cities anymore. He has to go out to the desolate places and have people come to him. He has to wait for the things to cool down a little bit, and that's where we pick up. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to look at this story where Jesus does this incredible thing. And this is really the first of like five narratives. As Jesus comes back into town, he comes back home, and he performs these five miracles. And the question that's brought up in all five of these little stories, is that does Jesus have the authority to do this? He's seeming to claim some sort of kingship. Is he king or is he not? So uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we pick up. He's been out of town, and then he returns home. It says this in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. The king is back. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. There's a couple things I want to point out right there in the story. First of all, Mark really wants you to know, he's emphasizing that there is a crowd, right? He says it like three times in a row. Many were gathered together, there was no more room, not even at the door. The place is packed. Mark wants you to know that Jesus is besieged. There's no way in, no way out. In, in uh, first century Capernaum, where they're at, where they're hanging out, there was this culture that if, if you wanted private time, you closed the door. 
if anybody could come in, you, you keep the door open, and it's kind of like a small town, any town USA, right? Screen doors, you come to the front porch, you have a conversation, you come in, and you could eat, and uh, they didn't close the door, and the place filled up. It's packed. They're shoulder to shoulder. It's like a, a Filipino family reunion. It's like there's a lot of people in the room, all the way out into the streets. And the other thing I want you to notice is that he's preaching the word, He's preaching the word. This is the thing that he was preaching. Mark doesn't go into a lot of detail of the sayings and teachings of Jesus. He just says they're all summed up in this, this gospel story that the kingdom is at hand and that it's good news. And it's this kingdom pronouncement. So they're all gathered around to hear this. And here's where the story picks up. There's a lot of action. It changes tense to now like, Go, go, go. It's almost present tense in the way that it's told. It says this, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic man carried by four men. There's a, there's a guy who can't walk. He's on a stretcher. He's got four guys carrying him. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd that we already kind of talked about, they removed the roof above him. They removed the roof above Jesus. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith. Now here, this is a really odd scene, right? These guys show up, they'd heard the stories, they're like, well, we gotta get, we gotta get them there. So they show up and there is no way in. No way at all, it's backed up to the, the streets. It, it's like cheddars on a Friday night, like you, you can't get in, right? So they're trying to, trying to get in the can't, so they're like, ah, all right, we'll push our way through. We'll find a back alley. We'll do whatever we got to do. They get up on the roof. Now, at this time, the way roofs were constructed, it was usually like a deck. That's where you could hang out, you know, when it got cooler outside and things like that. This flat roof. And the way they were constructed was there was uh, beams about three feet apart. And packed between them were a bunch of sticks and then a bunch of dirt and clay. It's very... Uh, Eco-efficient, that was really important to them at the time. There's a lot of guys going around selling that stuff, leasing it. But uh, they, they built the roof this way, so these guys get up on the roof. There might be stairs to get up there or whatever. They go to the back alley, they push their way through, and now they're going to dig through the roof. Do you understand this? This is like, hey, we're here. Like they're, I don't know, they got tools, they're clawing at it, whatever they're doing. They're digging through the roof. I don't know what the scene is on the inside. Mark doesn't give us any of those funny parts. Like, what, what are they thinking? Like, Jesus is standing there. He's preaching. Right above him, uh, home renovation going on, right? Skylight being put in. Dirt is coming down. Does he stop? We don't know. He's a, he's a pro. He just keeps pushing through the sermon, even though there's this distraction happening. And then all of a sudden, they, they open up the roof, and they lay this man in front of him. It's crazy. I don't know what the people were thinking. I don't know what you'd be thinking. You, you fought your way to get in there. You're waiting, and like, this is kind of rude, guys. Like, he's in the middle of preaching. You're going to just come through the roof? Rude. Interruption. Wait your turn. And this is the scene that we're, we're given. Now, here's some important things to note. 
First off, Jesus sees their faith. Very interesting. He sees their faith. They don't have a conversation, and they kind of go back and forth, and he goes, oh, okay, now I believe. They don't profess their faith. He sees their faith. He sees it in what they do. Notice all the action. Notice, look at all the verbs, right? They came, they brought him, they carried him, they, they removed, they opened, they, they let him down. They're just doing things. See, faith, the faith that Jesus sees here is an expectation plus action equals faith. This expectation, they, they really believe that if they could just get their friend there, he'll fix everything. That's insane, right? Like this type of expectation. Like, if, guys, we just got to get whatever it takes. I don't care if people think we're rude. I don't care if we destroy this guy's roof. I don't care what we got to do. I believe so much that if we could just get him in front of Jesus, he'll fix everything. That's cool. That's insane. And here's where the story, when I was a kid and I was in church in Sunday school, this is usually where the story would end. It would be this lesson about how you need to have this type of faith, which is a very important lesson and is a principle in here. I mean, look at what these guys did. Look at how Jesus receives it and accepts it. Look at the, the lengths to which they're willing to go to to bring their friend there. But it's not the point of the story. It's a subpoint. It's the premise. It's the setup. Because the story is about to come to a screeching halt by what Jesus says next. What Jesus says next takes the shift and the focus all away. It was, it was on these friends and this, this paralytic man, this guy who could not move on his own. And it shifts from them this is only halfway through the story, and it moves on to what Jesus says. So the next chunk of verses is all about figuring out how to deal with what Jesus says next. And here's what he says next in verse 5. It says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the story comes to a complete stop, a full stop. Because what? What? I mean, we came here for healing, and you're offering forgiveness? I mean, that's, that's great and all. That's nice. But we just pushed our way through a crowd. We just dug our way through a roof, we let him down. I don't know if they did it with ropes or if they're like, here, Jesus, catch, but he's there. <laughs> and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if he's looking up from the mat going, that's, that's really great, Jesus, but what I really came here for was I was hoping you could get me to walk out of this place. To understand what's going on here, we first have to understand uh, that there was a mindset in the ancient world, this, this kind of inaccurate theology, that, that your personal sin, 
brought about personal sickness. That if you were sick, if you were paralyzed, if you were blind, if, you were, if calamity struck you or your home, it's because the gods were angry or because God's mad at you. It's not accurate. In fact, we see it in the book of Job, right? Job has everything that could go wrong goes wrong, horribly wrong, not just like in a funny kind of uh, comedy movie way, but in the horrific, tragic way. He loses his kids. He loses his homes. He loses his, his uh, livelihood. He gets covered with disease. And his friends are like, dude, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't... I, and like, come on, dude, what did you really do? There's another story later where Jesus heals a man who's been blind since birth. And, and we see it in the mindset of the disciples. The disciples ask him, they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man might be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Maybe we don't know how the sovereignty of God works. Like maybe he, he, he already knew that he's going to sin, so he's punishing him for that. Or, or was it because of the sins of his parents? And Jesus said, how about neither? How about this place is broken? And how about he's blind so that I might now show you what our God does? That's where we get that great line in the song Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That's what the witness says. I don't know. I don't know what kind of authority, but I know I was blind, and now I see. See, Jesus is speaking to that, but... Jesus isn't saying that there's no correlation between sin and sickness because this guy came for healing, right? And he says your sin is forgiven. But what is the correlation between sin and sickness? Well, sickness and death and evil and all those things that we hate are in the world because of sin. Capital S, sin. They are the symptoms for the disease, which is sin. They're in the world because of it. It, it reminds me of Romans chapter 8, where it talks about the future glory that we, we look forward to, but the present sufferings that we face now, the, the pain and the sickness and the death. He says, for the creation waits, and it's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And catch this, he did it in hope. In hope that the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a correlation between sin and sickness. It's not this personal, like, kind of weird pagan karma kind of, you, you, well, you did something, so now you're going to get it back. But because sin is in the world, things are broken and busted, and we're waiting for the right king to bring them back to restoration. See, to Jesus, the man's biggest problem was not his paralysis, but his sin. To Jesus, this man who's lying on the ground looking up at him, his, his biggest problem is not the things that are broken in him, not the things that are withering, not his health, but his sin. And so he speaks to that, and he speaks to it with great compassion. You hear him say, son, this term of endearment, your sins are forgiven. 
Jesus didn't come to just give us some incredible teachings or to do some, some neat miracles. He came to forgive sins. Let me point it out to you this way. Every person that Jesus ever healed in his time here on earth, where are they now? Where are they now? They're dead. They're all dead. They're all pushing up the daisies. They've gone off and joined the choir invisible. They've shoved off this mortal coil. They're gone. D-E-D, dead. Even Lazarus, he brought him back from the dead. He died again. He's not still around. Otherwise, he'd be on E or Oprah, but he's not. They all died, which you might go, that's really cynical. And it is if you think this is the ultimate. But it's not. See, Jesus says the ultimate is the sin I got to deal with and I got to put death. I got to kill that thing. So to Jesus, uh, the man's biggest problem was was not his paralysis, but his sin. The purpose of all the miracles and the healing was not to prolong life or to stave off death temporarily, but to deal with it ultimately, to bring glory to God and to point to the, the restoration of all things. The thing we've got to wrestle with is that my biggest problem is not my paralysis, but it's my sin. Your biggest problem in your life is not your paralysis, but your sin. It's not the things that, that are withering. It's not the things that are broken. It's not the things that don't work anymore, that are unmoving, the things that are stuck. But it's your sin. We often say this phrase to ourselves, if, if only God would fix blank, then my life would really work. If only God would fix my marriage. If only God would fix uh, my, my job, my career, if only God would fix uh, my kids. Please, Lord, fix them. You know, if only God would do this, then I could be really happy. But our biggest problem is not the things that are st stuck. Your, your deepest problem is, is not the broken things, the limited things, the tragic things, the things that are stuck and going nowhere, but rather the sin and guilt that brought them into the realm of possibility in the first place. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. Now, you might have came here this morning because something in your life has got you paralyzed. Maybe, maybe even you're like the guy, like your friend brought you here, like drug you in on a mat and like ripped a hole through a ceiling to get you here. And your life is broken and unmoving and paralyzed. Your marriage is stuck, or worse, it's crumbling through your fingers. Your children are struggling. Your debt is crippling. Your health is withering. Your fear is overwhelming. Or maybe you came in here feeling like you're at the end of your rope because life is so heavy and unmovable. You came here desperately hoping to get it fixed. But I want you to know something. Jesus has something better for you even better than the thought of that thing being fixed. He forgives you. He came to bring life and life abundantly. He promises resurrection and hope. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't care about the paralysis. He cares deeply about the paralysis, and the story's not over yet. It does mean, though, 
that that's a symptom and he, he came to treat the disease. Do you get that? He doesn't just give you Rogaine to deal with the aftermath of the chemo. He's there to deal with the cancer of sin. And put that thing in its place and to blot it out. This doesn't negate the truth that we should pray for healing and expect God to do something. We should pray with that same expectation and action. And God cares deeply about fixing those things that are out of whack. This isn't the way that he designed it to be. We should pray deeply for him to fix the things that are broken and not working in your life. I've prayed really desperately for healing, for spiritual things, uh, relational things. I prayed for other people. I prayed for myself. I prayed. Sometimes I've seen God just completely move it and be glorified, and sometimes I've seen God say no and be completely glorified because the ultimate is fixed. I prayed desperately that my brother would be cured. Spent nights in the ICU praying desperately, worshiping constantly without sleep, expecting, hoping, dreaming, dream, having dreams where he pulls all the tubes out and he runs out of the place. And that's not how God was glorified in the situation. I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't disappointed. I'd be lying if I didn't say that I didn't feel gypped at certain points. But I have to trust that the deepest thing was addressed and that God is glorified greatly in it and I've seen proof of it over and over again. We pray for that healing. We expect God to do something because he does care deeply. But the real problem is not the sickness. It's the sin. He does all that, and, and then there's questions, right? There's questions. He, they came for healing, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And now the story comes a complete stop, and everybody's just like, what, what, why? And listen to what happens. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. These were the experts in the law. And a lot of times when I grew up in church, these are kind of like pictured as the bad guys. But look here, they're just sitting there listening because they want to hear Jesus. And now they're questioning in their hearts. They're not saying this out loud. They're not nudging each other. They're just kind of like taking in what's happening here and they're wrestling with it. They're questioning in their hearts this decision-making seat of, of their, their mind and emotions. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes aren't openly defiant. They're wrestling with the concept of Jesus. So this is a foreshadow of what's going to come to a head. This is the first time they kind of start to run aground with each other. This question about authority is really what we're talking about here. Who does this man think he is? They see him breathing in and out. They see his flesh. They see the sweat. They see his pores. No man can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God? There's an answer to that question. Nobody. But Jesus just did it. So he's either blaspheming or he's actually God. And blasphemy, that's, that's punishable by death. 
Jesus doesn't say, I'm God, but when you claim to do what only God can do, only God can forgive sins, only God can blot it out, you're essentially claiming an authority and a kingship that belongs to God alone. And so that's the issue. And then Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, verse 8, and notice that. He's perceiving this in his spirit. They're, they're questioning their hearts. Jesus is perceiving this in his very being, in the life-giving essence, in his breath. He's perceiving what's going on. Nobody does that but God, right? Like, he's perceiving what, what's going on in their hearts and that they thus question within themselves. And he says to them this. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, pointing towards his humanity, has the authority on earth to, give, to forgive sins, pointing towards his divinity. He turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is, this is the punchline of the story. Not the earlier thing. This is the punchline. Jesus, Jesus reveals something very incredible here. He reveals his rightful kingship and his mission that he's here to forgive sins. Jesus is the king of forgiveness. Spoiler alert. This is where the story is headed. Jesus is the king of forgiveness. This is his mission. This is what he set out to do. You came for healing the symptoms. I'm going to give you the cure for the whole problem. Jesus has the godly authority to blot out guilt of sin and reverse the effects of it. In fact, we see it here in verse 12, right? So he says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately. He got up immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. It wasn't just like, hey, take two of these every day for the next few months. You'll start to feel a little bit better. Don't do anything too strenuous. He's like, no. It's like, like molecules rearranging this thing that only God could do. And he gets up, packs up his bed, and he walks out. Jesus does the latter so that he could prove the former, that he heals him so that he could prove the fact that, yeah, yeah, I do have the authority to forgive sins. I'm the king of forgiveness. I have the authority to do just that. Jesus reveals not only his rightful kingship, but his mission. Worship is the only appropriate response to that. We see that next. It says, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is Jesus' pronouncement. I'm, I'm the king of forgiveness. This is what I came to do. And when he asks this question, which is easier, to say get up and walk or to forgive sins, I think when we read it nowadays or we read it like how I always read it, I was like, well, it's obviously easier to say, you know, your sins are forgiven because no, you, right? Like, how do we know? But see, in their minds, that was impossible to say because only God could forgive sins. That's blasphemy. That's a hard thing to say. And then he says, well, is it hard to say that or get up and walk? Well, that's impossible too. They're both impossible. 
They're both only things God could do. And I think actually what Jesus is implying, if you read it, he's implying that's actually harder to say your sins are forgiven. I used to think this was some sort of like gotcha moment for the, the scribes, but I actually think Jesus is asking this question and he's looking, he's looking down the road at what he has to do. And he's going, it's way harder to forgive sins. It's way harder to die and be the atoning sacrifice for sins. It's going to take a lot of passion and a lot of work to walk down that road of redemption. It's a foreshadow pointing towards the cross, and then he proves that he has the right to do it. And the response is worship. When you encounter God, when you see that, uh, the only appropriate response is worship. When Jesus undid sin, he healed us fully and ultimately. When he undid the sin of this man, he then sh- foreshadows or gives a foretaste of glory divine by, by healing him fully and immediately right there. And that's what we actually have to put our faith in, this expectation. We have to put our faith in the, in the reality that, that this isn't it. That Jesus forgives our sins. And we, I don't know, that's such great news. You'd think we would be able to just sit in that very simply, but we always try to fight to earn it somehow. It's too good to be true, right? There's got to be a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. But the reality is only Jesus can forgive sins. There's no way we could work our way up to that. And it's good news, guys. It's good news. It's not just kind of meet them halfway. It's great news. That wouldn't be too good news because we can't even make it there. I'm going to wrap it up with with a couple of applications. I mean, those are the big points here. The first one is uh, some of us need to be challenged by the faith of the friends, right? The example of these faithful friends. They see somebody who is stuck and unmoving, and they gather together in community, and they say, we're going to bring him to Jesus. Jesus can fix this situation. And they just... They just go. They don't care. They push their way through a crowd. They climb on some stranger's roof. They damage his property. And they just are so desperate because they see this person who desperately needs to be healed. And they just, whatever it takes to get him at the feet of Jesus. And some of us just need to be challenged by that. Do we look around at the people who are paralyzed around us and see them as that desperate and see Jesus as the answer for that? Some of us need to understand that our biggest problem is not our paralysis, but our sin. Some of you, that's really hard because you're in the thick of it now. And it's really hard because the paralysis hurts. It frustrates and it depresses. It, it, it tends to try to crowd out hope. But your hope is not in, in this body. It's in the resurrected one. And God cares deeply about the pain you're going through. He cares so much that he sent his son to get rid of it for good. And ultimately and fully, when Jesus uh, undid sin, he healed us fully and ultimately. And we have to trust in that over and over again. You know, the, my brother-in-law is healed 
That's the cool part. It's not like a trick. He's healed fully and ultimately. Because without the forgiveness of sins, the miracle of just prolonging his life would have just been worthless. But the forgiveness of sin is everything. So he heals us ultimately and fully through his forgiveness of sins. That's what he's pointing to in the story. That's what Mark wants you to know, that he is the king of forgiveness. When Jesus undid sin, he healed us fully and ultimately. And we have to trust in that over and over again. Some of you, that's hard, not because it's tragic and it's brutal right now, but because it's easy. And whatever paralysis is in front of us, that's the most apparent thing, where there's just like, man, I just wish my work was better. And you forget that, like, no, your sin is the real issue, dude. You got to wrestle with that. Because you ever catch yourself saying, if only God would fix this, then everything would be good. God gave you something really good. He forgives your sins. I'm going to invite the team out here. And uh, today, if, if you're sitting here, I pray that God would restore unto you. If you're, you're somebody who, who puts their faith in Jesus already, I pray that God would restore unto you the joy of your salvation. But maybe you're sitting here and it's like the first time you ever heard it as good news. Like it's always just been kind of like a, well, you know, I've got to meet God somewhere halfway and I've just got to work for it and hopefully he's not angry at me. And then you look at all the things that are broken in your life and you go, he must be angry at me. And Jesus kneels down to you and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's your biggest issue. And I took care of it for you. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for all that you do. I pray, Lord, that you would grip our hearts. I pray for those in the room that maybe for the first time they say, you know what, I'm going to put my trust and my hope in Jesus. I pray that you would, you would grab their attention fully right now and that you would overwhelm them with your love and your goodness and your forgiveness and that that might change everything. I pray, Lord, for those of us in the room that really need to wrestle with that truth, that the deepest problem in our life right now is the sin that you've already paid for, that we can wrestle with that, and we can rest in the fact that you have forgiven it, and that we can actually have freedom from it, not this, not this fighting like, like we can beat it, but this resting in the fact that you have already forgiven it and that we can live in freedom from sin and death. You are our hope. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.